0: Welcome to meet the pa's podcast here are the experiences of seasoned pas up and coming development of policy from industry leaders and the exploration of those new to the career interviews done with a canadian twist at maple syrup And welcome back to this month's episode of Meet the PA's podcast. Today we are interviewing Christopher Roy Maddie, who is a a physician assistant in the United States. He is currently the program director for the University of Tennessee's PA program. And he also runs two podcasts the Pain Podcast, P A I N E, Pain Podcast, which is a teaching and learning podcast for physician assistants. And he also co runs the JAPA podcast. Uh, so welcome, Christopher. Uh, thanks for joining us today on our podcast.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Uh, it, I, I like I like trying to interact with other podcasters, especially PAS, and even better, you know, PAS in a completely different country. So it's uh, I'm I'm more than happy to do this. I'm, I was looking forward to it.
0: How did you even hear about our podcast? We're fairly new.
1: Um, I'm trying to remember. It probably went through either the normal social media Twitter channels or it was Ann or Ian. And I can't remember Ian's last name for the life of me right now. Um, Ian Jones. Yes. Yeah, it was was probably one of those two that, you know, had brought it up and and posted it on their social media. And then, um, you know, of course, I've I've got to follow as many of the, or at least listen to and follow as many of the PA podcasts that I can find. um, And that's kind of where it came from. So, yeah.
2: So, do you know Ian and Ann Dang personally?
1: Um, not personally. I know them through through Twitter. I talked to Ian over the phone because he was trying to he was trying to get me to come up to to talk at Kappa this year. Is, it, is that how you guys pronounce it? Is it Kappa? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, trying to get me to to come up there and talk at Kappa this year, but it coincided with um, PAEA, which is our educational forum. And I was already pot committed to do something in Denver, and to try to figure out how to get up to Canada, the back down to Denver, to then get back down to Memphis was too much. So, uh, him and I talked on the phone a few times trying to make the logistics work. So, hopefully next year I'm going to be able to make it up there.
2: Yeah, next year is it actually in Victoria, B.C.
1: Oh, excellent. Now Whistler is on my is on my list of places that I would like to go to ski, like on my bucket list. Um, so I, that would be that would be great to try to make it out there.
2: So are you an avid skier? How did you? Well,
1: I, I, well, I, so I grew up in Maryland and, um, which is sort of in the mountain ish area, but it's, it's just below Pennsylvania. And, um, I learned to ski on a little back hill mountain, very close uh, to the, to the Pennsylvania, Maryland border. And a couple buddies of mine every year would go up and go to Vermont, go to Killington. And we would spend three or four days in Killington and, um, Then I've been out to Big Sky in Montana for a big ski trip with some friends of mine in college. And then as with anything, life and kids and marriage and everything else, like I haven't actually – I actually haven't suited up probably in, gosh, 10 years. I mean, it's been a while. So my kids now are 10, 9, and 5, and we're – I've already told my wife I want to start trying to plan the obligatory family ski vacation somewhere and try to get them on some ski. So –
0: bring us back on course to talking about the PA profession here. You are currently the program director of a PA program in the U.S., correct? Yes, yes,
1: yes. so the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis.
0: So you also
2: have two podcasts, right? Uh, the Pain Podcast and the JAPA Podcast.
1: Yep, yeah. so I do. The, the Pain Podcast is my personal sort of baby that, that came out of what I wanted to kind of Yep, yep. you know my creative uh, endeavors that I wanted to do I mean one of the one of the struggles that you start getting into in academia is this whole publisher perish mentality and you know it's it, it, it's so frustrating because I had I had a paper that was published in JAPA probably two years or so ago that literally stayed in post-production for almost five years and you know I couldn't put it on any resume I couldn't put it on my CV you know all I could say is that it's you know it's in post-production. And it, it just it super bothered me because I want to be able to see the fruits of my labor, and I want to be able to do something, check it off, and say, "Here is, you know, here is the results." So it, it was around the same time when social media and podcasting came out, and there was this big movement in fomed and just teaching for the sake of teaching. And you know, that was one of the things from the Hippocratic Oath that I've got on my on my website, which is, you know, teach them this art if they desire to learn it without fear covenant. And it's basically just, you know what. I'm a teacher at heart, I like to teach, I enjoy it. So why do I need to prove myself to a whole bunch of stuffy academics and publish all these papers that nobody ever reads? And you know, now I can I can do a podcast, I can do a blog about, you know, hip disorders or, you know, electrolyte imbalances and I just publish it and get it out and you know, somebody emails me and says, You know what, hey, I really like that. That was that was a really good breakdown and I learned something and I'm gonna apply it to my patient care and that that's basically where you know, that particular podcast came from was just my, my love of teaching, and I really just like this new way of just getting the information out for whoever wants to, to uh, embark upon it, whether it's PAs or doctors or nurses or respiratory therapists or, you know, nurse practitioners. You know, whoever wants to learn can learn, and I'm going to keep doing it because I enjoy it. Um, so that was that, and then the, the, the JAPA podcast came about. Um, Adrian Banning is, is, a, is a faculty member at the Drexel PA program in Philadelphia, and her and I kind of hooked up on Twitter just because we have very similar professional ethos in terms of our educational philosophies. And, you know, we started talking about, you know, doing some kind of a social media endeavors. And um, I knew Harrison Reed also through Twitter. I mean, again, a lot of this is all just, you know, the, the incestuous nature of social media and Twitter and all this. And, you know, I knew him. So I just sent him an e- a, 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 a direct message one day on Twitter, and I knew that he was the associate deputy editor for Japan. And I said, do you guys have any interest at all whatsoever about getting a podcast together? Cause I've got a colleague of mine who would be really interested in, in taking up that mantle. And he sent me a message back and he said, it's funny that you mentioned that cause I just brought that up at the, um, at the editorial meeting and they're fully on board with doing it. So we just kind of through the back, yeah, through the back channels of Twitter, we got this whole thing together. And now every month, Adrian and I, you know, get together on Skype and we break down the articles for JAPA and you know, for us it's nice because, you know, I do my pain podcast because that's what I want to do. So there's, there's nobody breathing down my neck about, Hey, you got to do this or Hey, you got to address this. It's just whatever sort of floats my boat for that particular month based off of the topics. But it's hard to really point to my, uh, you know, my administration, my deans, my chairs, my provosts and say, look, you know, this is my podcast and my blog. So like, okay, that's great. But you know, we're not really going to count that towards anything where the, where the, but the JAPPER podcast is nice because it's our, it's our, it's our national journal. It's the PA journal. And I can say that I'm now affiliated with the journal and I do a podcast for the journal. So I'm still doing what I love, which is, you know, podcasting and teaching, but at least it's got a little bit more academic teeth behind it. And, um, you know, it gives a little bit more weight to, to that. And my hope is that the more of those that come out, then the more people will get into doing the personal things, the personal blogs and podcasts. And, you know, we're sort of laying the foundation for hopefully, you know, future educators and in, in, in the, the near future to use this towards their promotion intent. So that's I guess that's a long winded way of, of kind of where those came from. But, uh, you know, that's kind of where I'm at right now.
0: How long have you been running the podcast?
1: So the Pain Podcast is coming up on its two-year anniversary in December. Um, so I've gone through two uh, two years. I started in December of 2015, and uh, JAPA is just this year. I think we rolled it out right after our um, the AAPA conference in May. Um, so we get the we get the uh, ahead of print articles from Harrison, so that we have some time to break them down. And then, of course, you know, two busy academics we're trying to get it lined up to where we release the podcast. When the, when, the, when the journal drops is becoming uh, increasingly difficult but we try to get it out within the same week um, so you go to the journal, you can read it but then Adrian and I break down the CME articles and all the other ones in there just for a quick synopsis to keep people up to date all
0: right. Have you found students and other clinicians receptive to podcast education and how? Uh, if so, and how have you adopted your podcast over time to optimize the learning among students?
1: Well, I mean that's you know that's one of the arguments for people when they you know when they talk about uh, podcasts and, and blogs for educational purposes, they say, "Oh, there's no peer review," and I like, "Yeah, you know what? There's not." But peer review is just three random people who may or may not know anything about what you're talking about, then dictating whether or not what you have now spent time and energy um, on, and and you know possibly years of data. I mean, if you're doing original research on it. So you have three people that are vetting your work, which I think is just, it it makes absolutely zero sense. You know, social media to me is the ultimate peer review because if I post something online that is completely wrong, I'm going to have people lighting me up of why I'm wrong and here are the sources behind it. And I think that's what's really nice about this particular movement is the people that are getting involved in this really understand what it's meant to be. It's not it's not meant to be a pulpit for you to stand up and say this is how I think you need to manage ACS all the time. It's hey, I this is what I do. Here's a link to the article from the journal that I use and here's a breakdown of somebody who's doing a post publication review of this article and now let's have a conversation about it. So, you know, when I do when I do a podcast and I send it out to the world, if I say something wrong, somebody's going to write me and say, "Hey, you know, you mentioned this but you know, we really don't do that anymore, or, you know, you really should think about doing this, and then I get the opportunity to go back in and uh, make an addendum or change something. And so it's 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 really nice to have people that are really trying to make this an academic endeavor and, and treat it for what it is, which is just another avenue for professional development and, and uh, the possibility of promotion and tenure
0: you cover a wide range of topics on the pain podcast, and certainly you have a, a broad knowledge base with your history in ER medicine. Uh, but you still must get a bit nervous covering topics that you're a bit less familiar with. Have you ever had someone come back correcting something you've published? or And, and if so, how have you dealt with that?
1: Yeah, no, somebody uh, – I'm trying to remember what the, uh, what the month was. It was sometime last year um, – You know, I I primarily use UpToDate as my as my sources for the podcast. Mainly, one, you know, I get a free access, you know, since I'm in academia and my college has access to it. But they do a really good job of linking to articles within UpToDate. So, you know, they'll they'll do the synopsis article that you can review, but then you can also click on the individual articles, and then I can go read them and just make sure that I'm getting out what I want to get out. But, you know, UpToDate still is collated by. Uh, an editor and some associate editor so it's still their take on a particular condition so all i'm trying to do is just get that information out and and by the nature of us being pas we have to kind of be a little bit of jack of all trades master of none and especially as an educator you you know my background's in emergency medicine so i pride myself on being able to know a little bit about everything you know i may not be able to tell you to the nth degree what to do about you know you know, third trimester bleeding or anything else in terms of pregnancy, but I can tell you what to do to get to a point where then you need to get a specialist. So there's a couple times where I've gone in there and I've kind of gone off script and said, well, you know what, this is what I do. And, you know, somebody wrote me who was, I want to say it was something in obstetrics and um, I I, actually, I want to say it was the pregnancy induced, the pregnancy hypertension episode and they wrote and they just said, look, we don't really use those drugs You know the way that you said you use them, and I said, okay, well that that's great. And I went back in and I adjusted them, you know, made the addendum, and you know that's the kind of thing. And that's what's nice about it is if you if you make yourself open. And I kind of I I kind of you know what I hope for is that you know I come across as a very open kind of person you know on uh, audio because I'm uh, I've been told I'm a very imposing presence because I'm kind of a big guy and I got a big deep voice and people kind of tend to be. Intimidated, but I try to, I try to on the podcast make it to where it's, look, I want to have this open dialogue. And that was the first time that somebody said, look, I just figured I would write you and tell you just because you said to. And I said, this is what, this is what I want. You know, are, do, do you really feel like you're going to contact the lead author from some New England Journal of Medicine paper who's like this established researcher? And you just say, you know what? No, you're wrong with this. But this gives us the opportunity to have some conversation with the specialists that are in the field. And then it, it, it helps with my knowledge base, but then I can also, get that knowledge out to the people that are following me or, or reading the blogs and they can say look this is the take of this particular individual and it's something to always consider and, and you know we want to have that open relationship with our colleagues to have a, a professional banter, of not just to wrong, but hey, this this is this is the this is what we do and this is what I would like to get across and it's like great, you know, give me all of that. Give me all that information.
2: So you're published Several times over. Do you? Are you mainly published with JAPA, or have you published with other organizations as well?
1: Um, the main, uh, yeah, yeah, mainly just JAPA, just because you know it is the it is the PA journal, and, and um, as with everything in medicine and the hierarchy that is medicine, you know I have seen very few PAs actually get published in the BMJ, New England Journal, JAMA, I mean, some of these big heavy hitters, because those tend to be more, even the review articles tend to be by experts that are in the field. So um, it's nice for us as a profession to have an avenue to be able to publish and be published in a reputable journal that is um, PubMedable and uh, gives us an avenue of writing to our peers um, and and it, it, it's actually Japa does a really good job of, of submissions as well. I mean, I'll throw them a little bone here. You know, they they the, they make it very easy to submit articles for publication, and they have good individuals that are involved in the peer review process. So um, I like I like submitting there. Plus, I like to just get back to our own. I mean, I feel like you know we need to get some more people that are writing and get them out because you don't want you don't want the journal just to be the same. You know, ten or twelve people writing articles every single month. So they do make it very very nice for community PAs or practicing PAs who aren't academics to be able to crack into, you know, doing some publishing if they're if they're eventually wanting to get into academia.
0: Do you have any tips for other PAs to begin writing for a journal, especially for someone who's never done it before?
1: So there's always this game of publishing of, you know, you obviously want to get something that hasn't been published in a while because The journal, the journal editors are going to look at it and say, you know what, we actually haven't done something like that in a while, so this would be a good paper to publish. So if you sit on it too long, there's enough people out there that are doing the exact same thing. And the worst thing that can happen is that you go to sit down and you're, you know, knee deep in a manuscript and then you find out that they just published something that was the exact same thing. And now it's like, okay, well, I could try to submit it, but it's probably not going to get accepted because they just published it. So you, there's a little bit of the game of, you got to look into the journal. You can you can go to the journal, um, the website, and you can do a search for whatever condition. So if it's, I would recommend the first thing you want to start with is find something that you're interested in because you're going to have to spend some time writing this, and nobody really likes writing. So you you've got to be able to, to stick with it and enjoy it enough that you're not writing on some esoteric rare zebra disease. But it's something that you see that you feel comfortable writing on because again you're going to be you're going to be published in it so you should have some degree of expertise in it, and then go to the journal and search it and see if anybody's done anything on it in a while and if they haven't, then you're in the clear because they're just looking for for things to publish so the the, the you want to make sure that you're not doing something that somebody else has done but you want it to be somewhat interesting to yourself so my very first article was on electrolyte disorders because that's what I enjoyed so I knew for me to get into Publishing and getting comfortable with it—it it had to be something that I was going to be interested in writing. So, you know, my background is in emergency medicine. All of my pub, all of my papers are in um, electrolyte disorders, nutrition. Um, I did an uh, envenomations talk with a buddy of mine. You know, it's, it's it all revolves around those kind of things, but it, it needs to be something that you're interested in because you're going to have to be doing the literature review and you're going to be piling through papers and if you're not interested in it you're going to lose focus on it super super quick but that's that's my first that's my first tip is just pick something that you know you're going to be interested in because you're going to be doing this on off hours weekends mornings times that you don't particularly want to be and if it's not something that you really want to learn about you're not going to you're not going to finish it
2: so let's back up a little bit i really love a good origin story so can you tell us a bit about how you ended up becoming a pa
1: so, I was a kinesiology major in college. Uh, I'm a I'm a meathead through and through. You know, I was a power lifter, weight lifter. Do I did strongman competitions? I do Highland Games competitions. I mean, I'm just a a, a, a full on you know meathead. So when I was in college, I couldn't really figure out what I wanted to do. And, and the University of Maryland offered this degree in kinesiology, and it was right up my alley. It did all the things that I wanted it to do. Um, learned anatomy, learned physiology, learned biomechanics, um, exercise science—I mean, the whole nine. But it's—it's it's very much a gateway degree. Like you can't go anywhere with a kinesiology degree. It's always—you know—gets you to the next step. And um, so, all of us that were in my particular class were doing something else: going to physical therapy school, or medical school, or um, something else. And somebody had mentioned PA, and I said, "Oh, well, that's—I've never heard of that before." So, you know, I started tagging along with them and looking at some of the stuff that was online. And said, you know what, this is exactly what I want to do. I knew I didn't want to do medical school just because I, I, I didn't have the commitment. Honestly, at the time, I really just didn't think I had, I had the chops to do it. Um, just because all the people that I knew that were going to medical school were like 4.0ers. They published, they'd done research, like they did all the things that they were supposed to do to get into medical school. And you know, that wasn't me. So I knew I wanted to do medicine. I just didn't know what. And that was a perfect avenue for me to explore. And it just so happened that um, in the process of sort of sorting through some of these professions, um, our family, you know, I call him our family orthopedist because my sister was a competitive gymnast. So he took care of a bunch of her injuries. He took care of my mom's knees for a little while. And I had a, I had a wrist injury from lifting and went to see him. And, you know, I said, can I talk to your physical therapist? Because I just want to see if this is something I want to do. And he looked at me and he said, you don't want to do physical therapy. He said, let me introduce you to somebody. And he pulled his PA and he said, come in here and talk to Chris for a little while. And and I went in there, talked to him and he he completely sold me. He said, why don't you come back to clinic next week and, um, you know, I'll see you at one o'clock for your appointment and then you can stick around and shadow me in the office. And, you know, I shadowed him and watched him do some joint injections and watched him do that. And. Um, you know how he functioned in the clinic, and I said this is exactly what I want to do. And from that point on, it was, you know, that was that. That's how I knew this was the profession I wanted to get into.
0: It's really nice to have a mentor guiding you through that process.
1: No, um, he, he he knew me right from the get-go of what I wanted to do, and um, he just he he really was able to point me in the direction that uh, he thought I needed to go, and he was he was 100% right.
0: Are you still practicing clinically?
1: Um, I am. I have a so most of your academic gigs are um, of like an eighty twenty. They give you one day a week where you can practice clinically, and it's sort of outside of your normal um, your normal uh, compensation package. So um, in the you know the last seven years that I've been working in academia, certainly down in Alabama, I worked in the emergency room just because shift work you know emergency room lends itself much easier to a weird schedule where I could say, look, I have Thursdays where I can practice clinically. And, you know, most clinics that are outpatient can't just say, okay, well, you can be here on Thursdays. Yeah, that's cool. So, um, when I, when I was being recruited to come up to Tennessee and they said, look, you get a, you get a practice release. You know, I told them, I said, look, I can't worry about moving my wife and my family and selling a house and buying a house and running a program and worrying about trying to get my license and finding a clinical job in Memphis. I said, if you can find me a one you know that's what i need so they they parked me in the the student health clinic which is great because it's you know it's 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 basically it's preventive care you know i'm seeing students i'm doing counseling I'm, I'm seeing some of the employees that come in and so i'm practicing clinically but i mean i'll be you know it's not it's, it's not emergency medicine by any means but um you know it still allows me to practice as a as a as a in, in my mind how a PA should practice which is just outpatient anything walks in the door um, and you know i'm there to help take care of them and it's it keeps me on my toes a little bit because you never you don't know what students are going to come in whether it's just the sniffles or if it's a you know a mental health problem because you know school's wearing them down or the, you know they're having this chronic shoulder problem so it's it's fun um, you know i'm definitely a emergency medicine that's that's my passion trauma and that kind of stuff but Um, you know, education is where I'm meant to be. So, um, you know, this job works out great because it's eight to five. I don't have to worry about anybody dying on me. I don't have any ambulances coming in. And so it's a, it's a nice segue into the academic world.
2: So can you describe for those not from the U.S. um, the main obstacles for PAs in the U.S. and specifically the state of Tennessee? Because my understanding is that PAs are largely, um, individually regulated by each state.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. Um, Tennessee is a much more progressive state than Alabama, from what I'm what I'm used to. Now, having said that, it is still not anywhere near where it needs to be. If you look at states like New York, California, you know Washington, Florida, they're they're much more progressive in terms of what they allow the PAS to be able to do within. Um, clinical practice so of course you know you get your you get your national certification but then your state dictates what your what's your practice license you know you can't can't do Um, now Tennessee is interesting because there are um, we are the seventh PA program in Tennessee and there's three more that are coming online in the next three or four years so the need in Tennessee is huge yeah Um, it's it's definitely it it scares me a little bit from a program director standpoint because I'm like we're all going to be fighting for the same students but you know, obviously the need is there, um, and I think that it's – without getting into the nuts and bolts of the health care delivery system here, mainly a lot of it's just my, my naivety. I just – I don't know a lot of health policy, but I think that it's starting to come across that the, the managed care plans are starting to come into the fold of recognizing the fact that, look, if – we historically have paid a physician $100 to do this, but we can pay the PA $50 to do this and the care that they're delivering is exactly the same, then we're, that's how we're going to start writing our policies. And that's what we're starting to see is we're starting to see some of this policy shift of, look, we're, just, we're, not going to, we're not going to reimburse the physicians what we used to because we know that a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant is able to do that exact same thing at that exact same level of care for a lot cheaper. And I think that that's the route that we need to be looking at in the States is it's, it's ballooning out of control. I mean, we spend more per capita on healthcare and we have the worst outcomes and it just makes absolutely no sense. Um, but you know, politics aside, everybody's afraid of, you know, you know, you want to call it socialized medicine, you want to call it, you know, single payer system, what have you, there's pluses and minuses to everything. And unfortunately I think that, um, You know, consumerism is really ruling the roost in the states right now, and I think that if you really want to look at preventative health, that a single-payer system is really the way to go for prevention, but nobody really wants to hear that, and it's going to to take a pretty substantial – Push from the government standpoint to really make any headway on this, and and I'm afraid I'm just we're never going to see it. I just think there's too many there's too many feelers in the system, and too many people, you know, lining too many pockets that we're really going to see any significant change in the healthcare delivery here. Um, But I I do see, I have seen at the state level a lot of policies and things come across the wire of improving and, and increasing PA rights and being and privileges within the state recognizing the fact that, you know, it, like it's something ridiculous, like 40% of Tennessee is medically underserved and there's counties that have no registered healthcare provider. So no, no, no physician entire, entire entire counties that don't have a physician PA or NP that is licensed that their, their practice license is in that county. So that means that these people that are in these counties have to go elsewhere to get their, their healthcare, And the problem is is they're usually in areas where you're not going to be able to pay a physician $190,000, $200,000 a year as a primary care physician to practice in those areas because it's it's usually in the middle of nowhere. There's no major cities around there. The lifestyle is much different than you would be if you were to practice in a metropolitan area. But that's a perfect environment to have a practice where you have a PA or a nurse practitioner in because they can take care of the, the patients there they're semi autonomous they can do what they need to do but they have physician oversight and you're still you're not paying what you would pay a physician to cover that but you're providing the care to the community that needs it and i think that that's the shift that we're going to start seeing i think is that you're going to have these big medical practices that are in you know these big metropolitan towns but then you're going to have your your pas are then going to be out in the community in these areas actually providing the care but then consulting with their physicians on cases that are really tough but also having a a place to be able to send patients to that say, look, you know, this is tough. I can't really manage this anymore. I'm going to send you to see my doctor in town and you've got an appointment in two weeks and, yeah, it's an hour and a half away, but it's in the same group. Like I've already talked with my doc. He knows all about you. He's just going to help you manage this because it's kind of outside of my, my scope right now. And that that's where that's where I'd like to see the healthcare model go is, again, I don't think we're ever going to get to a single payer system, which I honestly think is the best way to go. But I really want to be able to see PAs be able to practice out in the communities with a little bit more autonomy and be able to set up these clinics to help take care of the community and the people that need them the most pas should
0: absolutely be utilized in the rural areas they can increase access to care so exponentially it's really important is there are there issues uh, like regulation wise for pas practicing autonomously is that the holdup for getting them out there
1: well it's, it's not really even so much autonomously They're, the the legislature just says that you have to have supervision by your physician now supervision is then it's very vague and, it, and it's and it's meant to be vague Um, like I came from Alabama, I had, right. I came from Alabama where they said that 10% of your charts had to be reviewed by your supervising physician, you know, in order to keep your license, 10% of your charts had to be, that's not bad, bad. right. And and there, and there are other states where they do that. and, And some of the policies are just set up in where that's just what happens. Like in the student health clinic I'm in right now, that's what they asked us to do. So when I finish my note in my EHR, I click a button that says, send to, you know, Dr. Jones. And all my charts go to her, and she just looks at them, and she and she just presses a button. But that's a whole another level of things that she has to do on top of her normal day to day things.
2: That seems like a bit of a waste of time for the physician if it's not right, needed. Right.
1: Right. So that's that's the policy at the hospital that I'm at, or the you know the the university clinic that I'm at. But in in other situations, uh, you know, supervision could just mean you have the ability to get in touch with your doctor, which means that you just have to have the policy in place that says, if I have a question, I can call you, you know, from the hours of nine to five, I call you at the office, and from after hours, I call you on your cell phone to consult. So that that is still supervision. That's still oversight. That still fulfills the requirement, even if they're not physically on site um, or physically reviewing charts. So t- Tennessee is pretty good about it because they, they have this vague nomenclature. It's more just changing the philosophy of, how we can contribute to the healthcare model that is trying to just get through the brains of the medical exam, the state medical examiners. So um, they're better, but they're still not as far as I think they need to go. It's
0: interesting to hear you say all of that, um, because in Canada, certainly the regulation over the PA profession is not as far along as it is in the Mm -hmm. states, Mm -hmm. but we actually have similar struggles.
1: Right, I mean, it's still it's still the the standard hierarchy of medicine, right? So the you know the doctor has always historically been captain of the ship, and if you're if you're brought up with that philosophy where you are the you know the top dog in terms of who's making the decisions, it's hard to relinquish some of that control um, because now you're saying, okay, well now I have this person who is going to be working with me in a collegial relationship who's making the same decisions I would make, and if that If your philosophy of how you were brought up and trained was ingrained in we don't want to give up any of these rights or anything because then they're just going to take over and we're going to be out of jobs, then they're going to fight you tooth and nail, whereas if you have some of these other people that are much more open-minded about, look, you know, the PAs are not going to come in and take over a practice because we can't see what you can see as a physician. You have a, you have a much deeper level of knowledge about disease processes, and you have a much better way of being able to handle these tough cases. Now, I can handle seeing new hypertensives. I can handle seeing new diabetics. I can manage their medicines. But if I get to the point where I'm on somebody who's on max dose of three medicines, you know what? I need a specialist, and maybe that's when I call in my doc. So you know what I did? I managed that patient for you for however many years until I could no longer manage them, and now they're going on to your census. And if you look at it that way, then you can say, you know what? My PA is helping me see more patients and help more people and seeing the things that I feel they should be able to see. And now my time is spent doing the cases that are difficult, the ones that are, that are, you know, a a little bit more challenging. And I can put my time and energy into that. And I don't feel like I've got a waiting room full of people that are really here just for their medication refill. You know, my PA can handle that. And if there's any problems, they can come and find me. So it's, 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 it's a, it's a professional shift that I think is in the making but it's still behind the times
2: i'm sorry i'm a little bit flabbergasted by the number of pa programs you have we only have three well four in canada if you include the military program and that's in the whole country
1: well if, you, if so if you talk to adrian who's in philadelphia there are six programs in philadelphia so in one city in pennsylvania there are six programs so in the city, what? Just the city, just the city. There are six programs. So, and and you know, Alabama, where I came from, there were two. There was one in Birmingham and one in Mobile, which are you know three and a half hours away, and that was it in in, in Alabama. So it's so weird to see the scope of things and how they change, and you know what's what. But but I mean, I'm I'm sure I'm sure once the because right now, correct me if I'm wrong, there they're, they're, they're is no accreditation for PA programs in Canada or in the process of it or?
2: Yeah, no. So we're accredited within Canada okay. but not US.
1: Okay, gotcha. Gotcha.
2: So I think the main issue for a lot of Canadian PAs is though we're accredited. Um, our regulation is individual by province and in Ontario, which is the biggest province for PAs, we're actually not regulated. Um, and this has some legal and other you know it makes a lot of hurdles for us as far as how we can practice and if we can bill how we can bill how the doctors can
1: yeah. Yeah. bill
2: for our services that kind of thing
1: yeah and I, and I remember listening to the to, to your guys's podcast with Ann, where she was talking about what she did and kind of how she changed her practice model around you know based off of the funding and and I mean you see a lot of that as well so I mean hopefully You know, there's a lot of people up in up in Canada who are writing these regulations that are looking at, you know, what states in the United States that are doing it well, um, because there really should be there should really be very little difference, you know, outside of just the, the, the single payer model of how PA should be reimbursed for because, I mean, it's the same care, you know.
0: You discussed the FOMED movement on your website. Um, could you describe to all of us what exactly this is and how it really links to your multiple publications and podcasts and your theories towards education?
1: Yeah, well, uh, FOMED essentially changed my life. Um, I went to the AAPA National Conference. I was in Washington, D.C. I believe it was in 2013, and... I mean, I had a Facebook account, but it was more just, you know, I got on there and just was keeping up with some of my friends from high school, never got on Twitter, never did any of that stuff, and went to a talk from by Joe Lex, who is regarded as the godfather of FOMED. Um, he wasn't the creator, because that was Mike Canugan, and, um, you know, because he's from um, Australia. but But Joe kind of took it and ran with it in terms of the philosophy of, teaching for the sake of teaching and getting things out of the hands of, you know, paywalls and, you know, p- trying to teach people who otherwise wouldn't have the same resources. So, uh, you know, his talk was something on, like, social media and applications and, you know, other stuff. And, and honestly, it was, it was one of those talks where I, I literally had nothing to do during that hour, and that was the most interesting talk that I could find and just sat in on it. And I was like, man, this guy is – one, he's a really good – teacher and he's a really good talker, but he really sold me on the process. So I came back, started a Twitter account, said, you know what, let me just kind of see where this goes. And I started following people on Twitter, finding the right channels. And, I mean, as with anything with with the FOMED movement, you find your circles and you find your personal learning networks. And all of a sudden I started gravitating around like-minded individuals. And that was when, you know, the blog and the podcasting um, uh, Started coming, bubbling up from these individuals as well, and I said, "You know what? This is something that I think I can really get behind." So I was, you know, just posting things here and there, educational articles and you know those kind of things to my Twitter account. My students would follow me, and I'd post some questions and you know stuff like that. But then there really was this sort of um, shift in my professional persona, you know, probably sometime in 2014, 2015, when I when I really said this is what I really want to contribute to. You know, this whole movement, this FOMED movement is exactly what I want to do. I enjoy teaching. It's what I want to do. I don't want to have to write papers and do talks and, you know, keep this all behind, locked, and key. I, I want to get out and I want to get this information to the people that are going to be able to use it. And that was when I decided to start the, the podcast, start the blog, and I have a, a, I have a very strict strategy of what I do. You know, if you go to the blog and you check it out, you know, I've got a, I've got a breakdown month to month of the topics that I cover. So all of my social media posts revolve around a certain topic of that month. My podcasts all revolve around that certain topic. You know, I do medical eponyms because I love medical eponyms and where they come from and the history behind them. And they all revolve around those topics for that month. So it's very structured in what I do. And it's revolved around the, you know, the, the pants examination of the, the blueprint topic. So you could follow me for the entire year. And just on social media, I'll give you the up-to-date articles, the social media posts, everything else that revolves around that particular subsystem for that particular month, and it it seems to be working really, really well. Um, it keeps me up to date on the on the articles because it makes me do lit reviews and follow um, you know organizations that put out new guidelines and. You know, you, you know that if you follow me on Twitter, that my posts that come out at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. every single day, because I use a I use a um, Hoop Suite, so I've got social, I've got social media posts through 2018 already, you know, scheduled every every single. I and mean, it's a, it is it is an absolute labor of love. Like you know, like I'll go through and I'll read, like the Lancet does their online uh, table of contents every Friday. So what I do is I go through, and JAMA does the same thing. New England Journal does the same thing, so I read it. If it's an article that fits well in the thing, I'd say, okay, well, this is an OBGYN topic, so this goes in February, so then I go to February, I link to it, put a graphic in, and so then I know that when February hits, I'm going to have an article from the New England Journal in there. And and so I follow its some ungodly number. It's like 30 or 40 journals that I get their table of content sent to me. So every single month I'm reviewing I may not be reading every single article, but I'm going through and saying, oh, this is important for PAs to know. Like, they might not need to go down into the gene transcription of certain diseases, but if there's a randomized clinical trial that came out that compared, you know, two different, you know, breathing treatments for COPD, I think that's important for PAs to know. So I'll link it into the pulmonology section of the blog and my social media so that people will then get it when that's, you know, it's time for pulmonology month. Um, So it's, it's, it, you know the best way that I can describe FOMED is it's just it's it's people that want to teach, and so if they want to teach and they enjoy it, you know you're going to get good information. You know my blog has links to the PubMed articles, so there's there's nothing in there that is just me saying this is what I think is you should do because I've got links to all the articles that I reference in the podcast. So it's it's about as academic as you can go, um, but I enjoy doing it. And, and I think that's the main thing is if, if you if you if you don't have a lot of time and you, and you can't be reading, you know, 40 or 50 journals a month, then you can find a few people out there that will help you collate that information and will get it to you. And some of it's pre-digested, and it's nice because maybe you're not the best in statistical analysis, so this person is going to break it down. But, you know, that's one of the things that the, the, um, uh, the people that don't like FOMED, they'll say, well, you know what, if somebody says that this is the case, then somebody's going to read it and say that, oh, well, that's you know, that's exactly what it means. And you still have to go back, and you still have to do your own research, and you still have to do your own critical analysis, but there's some things, like there's some people out there that I truly trust, that I'm saying, you know what, if they tell me this is bad, then I'm going to trust it. I'm still going to go read it, but I'm going to trust their initial judgment. But at least they've, they've brought it to the, the, to the forefront. They brought it to my attention that they think it's important for me to look at and if you find enough people online, you will be able to keep your medical education up to date for the most part, um, and still enjoy reading what they're, what they're doing and staying abreast of the, of the, the medical literature. And I think that that's, that to me is what FOMED is. It's just getting things that's important for clinical practice. People are discussing it and it's not just a link to an article you know, in a journal that may or may not mean anything. It's somebody who actually said, no, this is a good this is a good journal or this is a good article, this is why, this is how it's going to change my practice, um, and then I'll find it, and then I'll go read it, and I'll, I'll, I'll come to my own conclusion about it, but at least they brought it to my attention and sort of pre-sifted it. So that, that, that to me, that's what FOMAT is. It's, just, it's pre-digested, pre-sifted medical information, and if you find the right people, it's going to be good information.
2: Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. We really, truly appreciate this. We know um, you took time out of your very, very busy schedule to do this for us. um, And we really greatly appreciate it. Oh,
1: you're welcome. I said, you know what? The best, in my mind, the best interviews are the ones that kind of just go off script and you just get to talking. Yeah, hey, oh, that's great. great. No, this, was, this, was, this was really fun. I really appreciate it.
0: If any of the listeners would like to get in touch with Christopher, he is very open to messages. You can contact him through his website, www.painpodcast.com, P-A-I-N-E, podcast.com. You can also search for The Pain Podcast on iTunes. His second podcast, the Jabba podcast, uh, is also searchable on iTunes. And we hope you all enjoy listening to his episodes that do come out on a weekly basis. Thanks again to Christopher and all of you for listening.
2: Meet the PA's podcast is sponsored by pahelpers.ca where you can find all your Canadian exam prep needs. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit us at mtppodcast.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and we would love your feedback.